Please be seated. If a person were to look over the last five years in an effort to find out what song we have sung the most, what song do you think that would be? Personally, I have no idea what it is. I should have done that, but I don't have any idea. But what I can tell you is if you had done that with the Jewish prayer book, looking for the psalm that was most often and most frequently repeated, it would have been the psalm we're looking at this morning, Psalm 145. There's a book called the Jewish Talmud in terms of uh, offering people things that they ought to do. And one of the things that's probably not a surprise is there's this portion of the Bible, Deuteronomy 6, called the Shema, in which people were asked to recite that three times a day. But in this Babylonian Talmud, they also say this psalm, Psalm 145, should be recited three times a day. But I think that's interesting because for a lot of us today, Psalm 145 doesn't naturally rise to the surface as one of the most frequently mentioned psalms. And I think a part of it is because there's the theme in this psalm that is reflective of a different era and a different age. See, this is how I outline the psalm. You have this interlude of the blessing of the king, the exploration of the great king, and then of the good king, and then the interlude again of blessing the king. Then there's a mention of the kingdom, and then the king providing for all the people, and then this final interlude of blessing the king. And is there one word that's repeated an awful lot in that outline? The word king. You see, this is a psalm that is about the king and his kingdom. And yet we have within our own history a certain historical sensibility about kings. This picture, of course, is of George III. George III was the ruling king when the Americans decided they would revolt against the king. Now, it was different policies and different rules and regulations that this king made that the people decided they would be better off without that man serving as a king. When the Americans uh, defeated the British, uh, there were many people who felt like George Washington should be king. And George Washington's response when being asked to serve as the king, he said, having defeated George I, why would I want to become, or having defeated George III, why would I want to become George I? And he began planting seeds in this notion this cultural sensibility that's with us, which is a rejection of kingship. And that rejection of kingship has, over time, evolved into a rejection of many forms of authority. It wouldn't be uncommon to hear people saying, talking about throwing off all constraint and all authority, neither God nor master. But in a lot of ways, that's not a completely fair assessment of the American view of kingship. It's not that we disagree that there should be a king. We just think we each should have the right to be our own kings. And it's not that we don't think that there's different kingdoms. We just think that all of our own little kingdoms are wrapped up in our own bodies, in our own choices. See, we like this notion that Adam and Eve looked at a person who said, you can't do that, and said, don't tell me what I can and cannot do. And Adam and Eve, of course, ate the fruit and rebelled against authority. There is this deep-seated part of us as a larger culture that rejects authority. 
And I think that's why from the very beginning verses, this psalm sounds odd to us. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Now, whether your Bible translates it or not by the king, there is a definitive article. So we are talking here about the king. This, you'll notice, is a psalm written by David, who himself is one of the kings, but he is not recognized as the one who is the king. So David is saying, essentially, there is a king, and I'm not him. I am a king, but there is one who rules and reigns, and that is God himself. But the theme here is of kingship not of personal freedom, and not of a rejection of authority, nor is it promoting independence. This is celebrating having a king to which the people can submit to. And so it is with the concept of kingship that I find it important that we remind ourselves of, his, of Israel's short history with kings. Of course, it was in 1 Samuel 8 that the people came and said, we want a king, someone to rule and to govern over us. Samuel, of course, he ran over in the corner and he was crying because the people rejected him until God reminded him, no, it's not you that they're rejecting. They have rejected me from being king over them. See, the, the reality was that Israel already had a king and that was God himself. But for whatever reason, the people were dissatisfied with God serving as king. And so they said, God, vacate the throne so we can put our own king on it. And God was opposed to the idea. But God's opposition had nothing to do with his own authority, had nothing to do with his own self-interest, but it had to do with the concern of the people. See, I want to read for a moment a section out of 1 Samuel. I'm going to just read snippets that we heard, already read this morning, and I want you to listen for the key word here. Okay? It should be pretty obvious. Speaking of the king, the text says, He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the beasts of your field and vineyards. He will take one-tenth of your grain. He will take your male and female slaves. And the best of your cattle, he will take one-tenth of your flocks. Did you see the word there? I gave you a little help, didn't I? Take, take, take. That's the concern of the king. And, and, and that's the very concern that we have today as Americans, isn't it? That's why we reject those ruling over us, because we believe that if they're in positions of authority, they will use it for their own benefit. And so David here is celebrating the kingship. And so the very first section of this psalm, he celebrates the greatness of the king. See, this is a psalm where you'll see these many sections within them. So look, for example, at verse 3 that is the beginning of this small section. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, his greatness is unsearchable. What key word do you see there in that verse? Greatness. And the section ends in the way that it begins in verse 6. I will declare your greatness. So the first thing David says, hey, I'm going to praise this king because he is a great king. And he speaks then of his glorious splendor, his wondrous works, the might of his awesome deeds to emphasize that God is not just the king, but he is a great and a powerful king. And isn't that just the very thing that gives us the heebie-jeebies about kings? That they have too much power. Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Don't we much prefer checks and balances rather than unilateral power? Haven't we all witnessed the damage that can be done when one person has so much power? 
I read the story this week of an employee who was talking about what happened in the middle of an extremely busy day, in the middle of an extremely busy week when the boss was unaccounted for. And they got an emergency call from the boss saying, I need your help right away. Something has come up. Well, what is it, boss? What do I need to do? He says, I need you to call the hotel. Well, why should I call the hotel? And he said, I need you to call the hotel and tell, tell them to send somebody to the pool because it's been 20 minutes since somebody's come by to take our drink orders. You ever had a boss like that, a little too much power that went a little too much to their heads? 56% of Americans believe that their boss is either mildly or highly toxic to their work environment. And so does the solution seem to be, let's just give them more power. And then I'm sure they will turn into more respectable and responsible human beings. So in what sense then can we celebrate the greatness of this king, this one single sovereign who has all the power, and we're celebrating his greatness? And it's because of the next section that we realize why we can celebrate his greatness. The next mini-section we find, and I have verses 3 through 6 listed here, but it's verses 7 through 9. And what is being explored here is the goodness of the king. You'll notice in verse 7, David speaks of his abundant goodness. And then he again, once again, he begins, he ends where he begins in verse 9, saying that the Lord is good to all. And so here's what we learn in this section. We learn of his righteousness, of his graciousness, that he is merciful, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love, and we learn of his compassion. Now, if we were so inclined, we could take an hour and do a sermon on each of these words. But I suspect we're not so inclined to do so. But one of the things that we recognize is that these are words that are, are splattered and scattered all throughout the Old Testament. It, it's almost like these words are like the words on a record that skip and come up over and over and over again. The nature of this God to be a good God. See, one of the things that this psalm is trying to answer for the, quest, the question for us is, what is God like? And the word here that encapsulates his nature is he is good. In fact, that's the same word that Jesus used whenever he was referring to the rich young ruler. He said, there is only one who is what? There is only one who is good. But I think that we will struggle to give God praise in his greatness until we have fully grasped his good nature. I read a story this week about a narrator who was sharing about many of his experiences growing up, going to church, learning about God, learning about the Bible, learning about the good news, and learning about salvation. And then he said at age 13, something happened. For the first time that he can remember, there was a flagrant, intentional sin in his life. And the thing that I wonder, as I'm listening to this young boy share the experience, is... How will he describe God at this very moment? This young boy who has been to church, who has read the Bible, who has been taught about salvation and has been taught about good news, would he use the language of Psalm 145? Would he in this context celebrate the fame of God's abundant goodness? Would he extol God's graciousness and mercy being one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Or perhaps a better question is, would you, 
the moment of sin describe God in that way? Well, here's how that young boy, who's now grown up, looking back, writes about that experience. He says, There was nothing I could do but passively allow the full weight of the mighty sin I had just committed to descend on me. God, who clearly resembled my distant and aloof grandfather, a juvenile court judge, was, I was sure, about to strike me with his proverbial bolt of lightning. And don't we have different pictures of God being told and being communicated? Is this the God we serve, or is it the God of Psalm 145? See, I believe that in order for us to celebrate the greatness of the king, we must embrace the goodness of the king. I'm going to say that again, because it's important that we realize that in order for us to celebrate the greatness of the king, we have to celebrate the goodness of the king. Because who wants to give more power to someone who is not good? Who wants more authority to go to somebody who uses that authority to your disadvantage? No, the only way that we really celebrate his greatness is when we recognize the goodness of his nature. But I want you to notice also in verses 7 and, and thereafter, we're going to see a little bit of a shift in, in who uh, extols and celebrates the greatness of this king. In the first six verses, there are all of these first-person singular statements. I will extol, I will bless you, I will meditate, I will declare of your greatness. But starting in verse 7, there's a shift to the third-person plural, they. They will celebrate the fame of your abundant goodness. So we wonder who are the they of which this verse speaks. And verse 10 tells us that it is all your faithful. So this, we find, is the covenant people. So we have, first of all, David celebrating the, the greatness and the goodness. And now all of the covenant people together who are in relationship with God, they celebrate the greatness and goodness, and they anticipate something. And the very thing that they anticipate is the glorious kingdom of this very king. And so in verses 11 and 12 and 13, we find that they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. Now, here's one thing that I didn't tell you yet about Psalm 145. It's an acrostic poem. Remember back in school where they, you, know, you write the letters of the alphabet, A, and then your first word has to start with A, and then you write B, and the second word starts with B, and then you write C, and so on and so forth. This is an acrostic poem through the Hebrew alphabet. Where we're at now is in the very middle sections, the letters K, L, and M. But what's really interesting is if you spell these in reverse, of course, it's M, L, K, which is the Hebrew word for king. See, this whole psalm is intentionally structured around. It flows towards kingdom and kingship, and it flows out from there. This is the epicenter of this psalm. And so what happens when you have a great king who is a good king, when his kingdom comes, what do people do? They celebrate it. And so once again, we find out that this is not a people who are celebrating their freedom and their absolute sufficiency. These are not people who believe that by submitting to the rulership of a good king, their lives are going to be worse or terrible or somehow uh, uh, problematic from here on out. In fact, they realize when the king comes and he establishes his kingdom, their lives will improve when they submit 
to the king's rule and to the king's reign. So what they're really celebrating is the king coming and saying, this is how things will be done and conducted in this kingdom. And then it bears the question, but what about those outside the kingdom? We have David can celebrate the king, and the covenant people can celebrate the king in his coming kingdom. But what about people who are outside of that kingdom? And so we find this next major section, which is the king's commitment to the welfare of all people. See, one of the things that we find is, is this psalm is naturally built where, where there are expanding circles of praise. So you'll see it begins in verse 1, where David himself says, I will bless you. And, and, th and then the circle gets a little bit wider in verse 10, all your faithful shall bless you. And, and then it cannot get any wider by the 21st verse when it says, all flesh will bless his holy name. You see, the good king and the great king is not just good for David, and it's not just good for the chosen people, it is good for all people. That all people should actually celebrate and relish the time when the king comes and says, I am establishing my kingdom. That, that for all people this is good news, not for a select group of people. There's nobody here who looks at the other and says, Nan, Nana, Boo Boo, you don't get the kingdom, we get the kingdom. No, this is for all people. And see, we find this as an important pattern with this use of the word all. It began in verse uh, 9, but we see in this section, in verses 13 and following, it's all over the place. So in fact, I counted 16 lines from verse 13b on, and all but three lines have the Hebrew word for all. So what we're witnessing is a transition from God's own people towards all creation. So God the King is not just committed to the welfare of his own people, God the King is committed to the welfare of all people, because the reality is all people are, in fact, his people. And so we come to find some of the things that God does as this righteous king. He upholds those who are falling. He raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in season. You open your hands, satisfying the desires of every living creature." So God provides for his covenant people in a special way, and yet God provides for all people. See, God's mercy is not such that he waits for us to do something to earn his merciful treatment towards us. He extends his mercy to us in order that we might come to become a kind of a people who will join in celebrating and praising his name. So prior to a person becoming a part of the kingdom, they should expect to receive God's generosity because God's generosity is for all people. Jesus, I think, affirms this when he says, He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. But there must be a recognition of him. There must be these people who will call on him, who will call on him in truth. They will fear him. They will cry to him. And they will love him because they recognize when the king comes, this great king comes, who is a good king to establish his kingdom, they will recognize their very own need to be a part of that kingdom. And so the psalm ends where it begins in verse 21, but yet it's, it's much broader. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever David is looking forward to a time when all flesh will become a part of this coming kingdom and where all flesh will bless the name of God. And because of that, it shouldn't be very surprising 
that the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark are this. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom that Jesus is speaking of has a king, and it is the king of Psalm 145. It is a great and a good king. And it is also a kingdom that, will now, that, that Jesus will now play a role in being the king over himself. We see his greatness in the things that he has done in the Gospels. But what of his goodness? His goodness is displayed in that contrary to the kinds of kings we find in the Old Testament, this is not a king who will be typified by the word take, but he will be a king who will be known by what he gives. As we celebrated around the Lord's table, this is not a king who said, he said, in fact, people do not take my life from me, but I give it. And why does the son give? Because the son has the same nature of the father who so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only son. But see, every time we encounter this kingdom, it forces us to reevaluate the thrones and the kingdoms in our very own hearts. Only one can be seated on this throne. God does not co-lead with us. God does not sit alongside us and say, well, here, I, I, I want you to be able to do what you want to do. There's only one kingdom, and thus there's only one will. And it must be the will of the Father that is done and that is accomplished. And so what has to happen is this word of repentance means we get out of the way of the king's rulership, and we get out of the way of the, the rules of the kingdom, and we allow the king to rule, and we submit to the ways of the kingdom. And so there is for all of us a call for repentance. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a minute, maybe even a whole literal minute. And I want you to be asking yourself in quiet reflection, in what ways does the coming kingdom call for your repentance? In what ways are you still trying to sit as the king on the very throne of your life? So take a moment. I'd encourage you to close your eyes. We're going to take a moment till I come back up and just ask yourself the question, in what ways do I need to repent and make room for the king and for his kingdom? Take a moment and reflect on that question. In just a moment, we're going to be uh, singing a song. And as we sing that song, if you want to share with someone uh, the ways that you're being called to repent, to, to give up the authorities in your own heart, uh, 
the conflict of the kingdoms, that, that there'll be some folks in the back. Uh, I'll be back there. Some of our elders will be there to, to pray with you if you want to pray with someone about that. Uh, and, and if that's not the context of the time, then, then it, maybe it's later. It's making a phone call and talking to someone about it, or, or maybe it's finding a friend, or maybe it's over the lunch table. But I believe that God, when his coming kingdom comes, he's asking for all of us to fall in line. And even those of us who are already part of the kingdom recognize there are still ways we rebel against his kingdom. That, that there are still ways that the, the will of self seems to exert itself. And so when we sing this song in just a moment, if you want to pray with someone, we'll be in the back. But before we finish, I'd like to offer uh, a blessing over you. Pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you. And that the Lord will make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you want to respond, come and find us in the back while we stand and sing together.